on. I'm on three seas. Look, there goes the game. You're listening to a summer edition of Ithaca Now. WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Jay Bradley. Thanks for joining us, and happy Father's Day. On tonight's show, you'll be hearing a special Election Center presentation by our friends at ICTV, preparing you for the upcoming 125th New York Assembly District and District Attorney votes on the 23rd. But up first... WICB News correspondent Lauren Leone took a look at recent policy change at Cornell University that's been demanded for a long time. Over the past year, these chants have been heard throughout the streets of Ithaca and across the campus of the largest energy consumer in Tompkins County, Cornell University. Starting last month, the Cornell University Board of Trustees stopped all new investments in fossil fuels following protracted student protests for divestment at the university's Ithaca campus. Student-led environmental justice organizations see the moratorium on non-renewable energy as a win after a decade of struggles against Cornell administration. Cornell's divestment announcement marks its end to future financial support for private companies that extract resources, like coal and oil, for energy production and sale. Fossil fuels have traditionally been perceived as investments that return revenue for investors. Institutions like colleges and universities have historically purchased stocks and bonds from these corporations to grow their endowment funds. Fossil fuel companies are not respectable investments. That's Cornell professor Caroline Levine who helped to draft the divestment resolution. Educational institutions have an equal moral responsibility to divest because our work is in the future. We are educating young people so that they can have rich, full, wonderful lives. And so the idea that we'd be investing in companies that were also destroying that future just seems so deeply wrong to me. Cornell's divestment reflects the global shift toward clean energy economies and away from the, quote, morally reprehensible actions of the fossil fuel industry. However, Brown University is the only Ivy League school that has pledged to fully divest from fossil fuels in the coming years. Alyssa Marcy earned her environmental policy MBA from Cornell in May and has worked to introduce campus sustainability measures through climate action. She says it has taken the university too long to reach this decision. I'm not really sure why Cornell is so behind in this regard. It's a little bit disappointing as a school that has an international presence, especially, and has so many international students. So it's just crazy to me that, you know, something that affects so many people, they, you know, aren't maybe as invested in their financial behavior as they should be. Student organizations like Climate Justice Cornell have applied pressure to university leaders through social, political, and economic activism in Ithaca, like blocking road intersections to disrupt business as usual. CJC joined discussions with campus community members to put forward a resolution calling for divestment, which was passed by all five of the university's governance bodies. Part of what we found noteworthy about the trustees' announcement of divestment was that they didn't call it divestment. That's Ellie Pfeffer, a climate justice Cornell organizer. They called it a moratorium on fossil fuel investments. And 
we're pretty sure that that is a strong desire to disassociate themselves from us. A previous vote for Cornell's divestment was unsuccessful in 2015 out of concern for the potentially negative financial impacts on the university. Since then, CJC and its coalition of student organizations turned to forms of protest that would attract more attention to their goals. Pfeffer says, So there was that like legislative work happening, but I am beyond certain that without the pressure mounted by students and faculty taking to the streets and relentlessly disrupting business as usual, this like would definitely not have been possible. As of May 2020, Cornell's endowment totaled almost $7 billion, according to the Cornell Chronicle. 4.2% of its long-term investments was previously allocated to fossil fuel companies. That percentage is expected to shrink to zero over the next 5 to 10 years as funds are reinvested in other sectors. Levine says Cornell's divestment is a meaningful institutional reform. It was actually a much bigger win than it seemed like. This is a long result of a lot of pressure from outside and from inside on all investors to think about what the consequences of their investments are. And so this was just one moment in a long story, but it was a pretty substantial moment. Although Cornell has ended all of its direct fossil fuel investments, it's unknown exactly how much endowment money remains in fossil fuels. Cornell's halt on future investments in this industry means that its endowment is being directed to what students like Pfeffer consider more ethical, green technologies fit for Cornell, a leader in sustainability research and education. Cornell touts its environmentalism as a leader in the world of green energy and environmentally minded practices for university, and yet was so reluctant to divest from fossil fuels and really live up to their values. Though the coronavirus pandemic has put many long-term projects on hold, it did not prevent the passage and vote for the divestment resolution. Marcy says student activists should be proud of their achievement amid the COVID-19 campus closure because the divestment announcement represents a change in Cornell's financial behavior. I think right now that it's something and that that's the most important thing is that you that you have some sort of promise from them. And I think what's most important now is to continue to hold them accountable. You know, to every year, don't, do not let them forget that they made this promise. Students' hopes for divestment are that funding will be committed to renewable solutions and clean energy alternatives that will slow the rate of climate change. They wish to see full divestment from index funds and non-renewable energies, more campus energy efficiency measures, and carbon neutrality by 2035. Marcy adds, I think there should be a focus on what you can do with what's right in front of you. Cornell students are so smart, so innovative, and they can do so much. So I think just thinking about, you know, how do you solve environmental and equity problems just right here in Ithaca would be a good step. Going forward, student activism and Cornell University divestment may lead to greater reinvestment into making the Ithaca community more sustainable. For WICB News, I'm Lauren Leone. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Jay Bradley. Coming up on June 23rd is the New York State primary. This includes the very heated race for the 125th New York Assembly District's Democratic nomination. ICTV Newswatch reporters Jordan Broking and Emily Hung reached out to these candidates to fill you in on what you need to know for the upcoming election. This is ICTV's coverage of the New York State primary. I'm Jordan Broking. And I'm Emily Hung. 
Early voting has started for the state and federal primary election happening June 23rd. For Tompkins County residents, one of the three major contests during this primary is the Democratic nomination for the 125th district seat on the New York State Assembly. Seven candidates are vying for that spot as current Assemblywoman Barbara Lifton is set to retire after serving 10 terms on the State Assembly. Making up the pool of candidates are Ithaca Attorney Sujata Gibson, Cortland County Legislator Bo Harbin, Lisa Holschel, Executive Director and CEO of Family and Children's Counseling Services, Tompkins County Legislator Anna Kellis, Dryden Town Supervisor Jason Leifer, Jordan Lesser, former Legislative Counsel to Lifton, and Seth Murdoch, current Communications Coordinator to Lifton. Today, we will look into the different issues each candidate has addressed throughout their campaign. We spoke to all the contenders ourselves to find out more about them. For our first candidate, Gibson supports a state public works program through the Green New Deal to stimulate local economies and address the economic fallout from COVID-19. It is the proven way to rebuild a crashing economy like ours. We've got to allocate, you know, really pump funds into a direct jobs program. Every county will get a pot. We'll have specific goals for each area. Um, and you use that to just literally just put people to work. So, and some other to like pay for, for smaller businesses and local businesses to put people to work. So we'll want to be building up, weatherizing all our homes, building more affordable housing that's safe and insulated well. Um, and then putting in community geothermal systems that can really offset our use of fossil fuels, but then also will keep us warm uh, as a backup system. She will fight to ensure the New York Health Act gives all New Yorkers the coverage they deserve. She also believes it is important to look beyond police reforms and instead create new systems to keep people safe, such as building a restorative justice program with minimal police presence built in. In addition, she plans on working to diminish the presence of immigration customs and enforcement in communities as well. Turning to Harbin, if elected, the first piece of legislation he would author pertains to expanding broadband access throughout New York. As a global IT expert, he believes the state should turn away from patchwork municipal and private broadband services and back to the Electrification Act of 1936, which provided federal loans for the installment of electrical distribution systems to serve rural areas. Here's a model that we can follow. We were able to pull America up and say, everybody needs access to electricity. Part of the utility needs to include subsidies for uh, low-income individuals so that they can get onto the internet, so that they can rent or purchase a computer um, that'll actually give them the connection because it doesn't do you any good if it's there to the home and you can't get to it. Harbin will also push for further education funding as well as implementing age-appropriate sexual education curricula in K-12 schools. He will also work to protect the New York Safe Act and look into ways to demilitarize society without repealing the Second Amendment. For Hoshel, an issue of importance is the New York Health Act to ensure guaranteed health care to all New Yorkers. We see people come through our doors every day that, that may have insurance but they have high deductible plans and they can't afford to re access regular treatment. We see people who, who, who are going into bankruptcy because they, they have no options for paying their bills. We see people who end up being hospitalized because they can't get approval to get into our clinic because it requires a prior auth and then they end up in the hospital. It, the New York Health Act has to be passed. She also supports the move to make COVID-19 vaccinations mandatory for school children when they become available, as well as mandatory de-escalation and bias training for all police officers plus thorough background checks. She believes a civilian oversight board reviewing misconduct of officers is vital toward complete accountability. Student loan forgiveness, marijuana legalization, and subsidized broadband internet access are among other issues she plans to address. Some of Kellis's top priorities are reforming police funding and racial justice. 
She supported repealing 50A, which occurred June 9th by the State Assembly, and she wants to ensure that recent police reformations are properly funded. With regards to racial justice, she also has plans for prioritizing workforce and infrastructure changes in areas that are systematically disadvantaged. The emphasis would be workforce development, um, infrastructure development in those areas specifically. Um, and I think that that is absolutely critical. Um, and because that has already been explicitly stated, then the pressure can be on because that is a stated goal to make sure that investments are prioritized in those communities. Kellis wants to help the economy recover from the pandemic by boosting the farming and renewable energy industries. She will continue to work on affordable housing such as the good cause legislation and investing in nonprofits while also prioritizing housing in areas that are transportation efficient. During his time as Dryden Town Supervisor, Lifer joined others to help protect New Yorkers from fracking, an issue he wants to fully ban. Other than that, he wants to work toward creating an equal education for every student by eliminating the property tax factor for school funding. Getting off of the whole property tax crutch for school funding because it'll never be fair as long as you rely on property taxes. Lifer wants to promote upstate New York tourism and work with downstate New York legislators as well to strengthen the alliance between the two regions. He will introduce a bill to end qualified immunity in the state and also wants to create a $1 billion fund to provide grants or loans to towns and municipalities across the state to expand broadband coverage. Jordan Lesser, who worked with current Assemblywoman Lifton, said the first piece of legislation he would author deals with the storage of renewable energy sources. This, he said, can be done by storing and using solar energy across New York homes. You can store energy uh, you know, during the day when it, it's sunny, for example, and you know, use it when you may need it in the evening hours when people return home from work. You know, although now maybe a lot of us are still working from home. Lesser wants to build affordable housing throughout the state and invest in communities of color that have been underinvested in already. He also said that the records of law enforcement officers should be heavily scrutinized as a way to further police accountability, and he will work to provide more funding to education across New York. Our final candidate, Murtaugh, is looking to address the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic, including potentially raising taxes on the wealthiest New Yorkers, imposing a tax on stock transfers, and pushing for federal aid. He's a strong supporter of prison education, having taught incarcerated men at Auburn Prison. I really think that it helps reduce recidivism so people like and i've seen this from my own experience like people i knew who were in that class since have since gotten out and stayed out and gotten jobs and now are paying taxes he will also advocate for affordable child care and public education and supports bail reform marijuana legalization fair and just policing in addition to broadband internet access these are just some of the top issues each candidate will be fighting for if elected to the assembly if you would like to learn more about each candidate Feel free to check out their individual websites before you mail in your vote or go to a polling place. You're listening to Ithaca Now on WICB. I'm your host, Jay Bradley. The 125th New York Assembly election isn't the only thing on the ballot, though, for the Democratic primary. The race for Tompkins County District Attorney is heating up as well, even without having as many candidates. Once again, ICTV Newswatch correspondents Jordan Broking and Emily Hung reached out to these candidates to fill you in on what you need to know for the upcoming election and its candidates. This is ICTV's continuing coverage of the New York State primary. I'm Emily Hung. And I'm Jordan Broking. Last time we took a look into the race for a Democratic nomination for the 125th District seat on New York State Assembly. You can find that video on our ICTV social media pages at ICTV News. Today, we'll now dive into Tompkins County District Attorney election. 
The Tompkins County District Attorney election is the area's top law enforcement official and prosecutes violations of New York state law within the county. In this election, Edward Kopko, a former Pennsylvania district attorney, will face off against incumbent Matthew Van Houten for the open position. We looked into both candidates' campaigns to find out more about them and the issues they will address if elected. As a former ADA, Kopko said he wants to form a community advisory committee to recommend the hiring of his assistant district attorneys. To also keep the community safe while also decreasing the amount of people put in jails and prisons, Kopko said he will look into creative alternatives to prosecution and incarceration for certain groups of people. By being smart on crime, not tough on crime, uh, I will make uh, prosecutorial decisions uh, first to keep everyone safe. If we have someone who is dangerous, uh, someone who uh, is exhibiting violent behavior, uh, that person needs to be prosecuted. Uh, and uh, probably uh, needs to be incarcerated. Uh, uh, everybody else uh, just needs individualized justice and individualized uh, consideration to understand their particular plight. Kopko supports abolishing qualified immunity nationally and will create a police misconduct board to investigate any possible cases of it throughout the county. He will also personally prosecute any officer accused of misconduct. Other than this, Kopko wants to restore faith and confidence in the community, which he feels is an issue between the judicial system and county. As District Attorney Van Houten and a team started the Wellness and Recovery Court, which aims to expand throughout the county to lower-level felony cases. If re-elected, Van Houten said he wants to decriminalize lower-level offenses and to start screening cases before arresting people as a way to lower the number that go into the judicial system. He's also a supporter of implementing the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, known as LEAD. It's another way to divert people from the criminal justice system before they're arrested um, for lower level offenses, offenses that really are contributed to uh, by substance abuse, poverty, homelessness, systemic um, concerns that affect the whole community. Van Houten supports holding police accountable for any misconduct and wants to have regular meetings with the community to address the issue of transparency within the judicial system. If you would like to learn more about each candidate, feel free to check out their individual websites or official social media pages before casting your vote. Election day is June 23rd and the acceptance of absentee ballots has been extended until that day. Tune in next time where we look into the election for Ithaca City Court Judge. Thank you for watching and have a great day. To hear that piece on the election for Ithaca City Court Judge, to see the video version of these packages, and to check out ICTV's summer interview series on race relations in Ithaca, head over to ICTV News on Facebook. Also, of course, be sure to go and cast your vote on June 23rd. And that's all for this edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all of our stories on WICB.org, and if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now on your favorite podcast app to hear the show anywhere you'd like. And subscribe to The Latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday wherever you go to listen to podcasts. Just search WICB News Presents. 
For more updates throughout the week, follow us on social media. Search for WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And before you go, we have some thank yous for tonight. Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard. WICB Station Manager, Sam Eyes. ICTV News Director, Erica Liberati. Correspondents, Lauren Leone, Jordan Broking, and Emily Hung, as well as the rest of our station's executive and news staff for their support. All of the music from our show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff, who hails from Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at WICB.org. We will be back with more episodes of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. on Sundays in the coming weeks to cover continuing activism, the pandemic and its effects on people and businesses here, as well as other important news in Tompkins County. I'm Jay Bradley, and thank you for listening to Ithaca Now on WICB.